For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, a Canadian woman is accused of murdering the husband who abused her for 30 years. Did her punishment fit the crime? We'll talk about the podcast in her defense from the Globe and Mail. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Thanks for having me back on the podcast, Rebecca. Listen, every week I debate who are going to be the guests this week. Who? Uh Uh-huh. And every week I say, oh, fuck, it's got to be Kevin again because he lives here. Funny. Rebecca, what are you doing down in the basement? And if I don't have him, his feelings are going to be hurt. It's going to be a whole thing. He's going to be all sullen when we go to bed. When he does the laundry, he's just going to leave it in the baskets all week and not fold it. Oh, wait, you're going to do that anyway. Doesn't matter. So anyway, <laughs> also with us. <laughs> that, that really hurts. It stings. It's true, though. I think it was called for. But, uh. <laughs> it's true, though. Also with us, guys, there's two baskets upstairs, like right above our head right now. Are there not? Why is that my responsibility? I mean, it's both of us. Last night, I was literally like, Kevin, we're terrible Why am I people. the only person in this house who knows hey. how to load the dishwasher the right way? It's got all these things. I know where all the different size plates go. Rebecca fills it like she's a fucking seven-year-old. Yeah. Just throws shit in there. And, and guess what? You're, you're in your castle, man. She's, Our yeah. dishwasher is an autoclave, and it gets it clean either way. And I'm the only one who actually starts it when it's full. Yeah. I can start my dishwasher from my phone. Ooh. Oh, wow. Can you say it with text message? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I say start. Ooh. It's like one of those soap emojis. Ooh, it just goes, it's very exciting. Yeah. Well, also with us is you, our <laughs> private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, author of the Piper Green series of cozy mysteries and appliance whisperer, <laughs> Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. I wouldn't say I'm an appliance whisperer, given that I still have no stove, but um, I do know how to make the dishwasher work. So Very exciting. You had problems hooking the piping, the water... Oh, distribution yeah. of that, but you got the Wi-Fi working. Yes, because once apparently once I had the uh, guy come to help me get it hooked up, um, you can't turn it on until you download an app on your phone and connect your dishwasher to Wi-Fi. So mm. Is go that, figure. Can you run it without the app? Um, like, I turn it on without the app now. I don't want to jinx it. I really don't know. Um, but for those who have been following Stovegate, I have finally been given a credit and I will be getting a new Three times, four times more expensive stove than I originally purchased. You'll be happier with <laughs> That's it. That's how they do you it. Will. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I'll say our washer and dryer has a function that's like smart. We've had it for what, like six years? And I was just like, yeah, fuck it. That's too complicated. I don't want to learn. No, it, it doesn't work, actually. I've tried. It says you can run it by Wi-Fi, except this model. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought I had to like I had to do some some like Sears bullshit. I, yeah. yeah. Who knows? Anyway, and finally, our resident doubting Thomas, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of Strange Arrivals, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Toby, what's your favorite appliance that you have in your house? My favorite appliance? Yeah. Uh, it's got to be the coffee maker. Nice. It feels like the most indispensable. This is relevant to your episode of OPP, 
Yes. Which people should tune in for on the Grab Bag Collab Network from our friends Amber Hunt and Daisy Egan and Amanda Rossman. This comes up, your expertise in appliances, I will say. Yeah, people not, might not realize that about me. Yeah, mm. you've got a little expertise in appliances. So can you come help me with some of my appliances then, Toby, when I'm hooking up new ones that I got? No, it, people are right when they don't realize that, as I, I'm not very good at appliances. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I went to Laura's uh, condo, guys. I've seen it. Did you know that? I've been there, too. I've been in the Inner Sanctum. Kevin, oh, have you been I, in no, the Inner Sanctum? No, I haven't Sanctum? been there yet, no. no. Yeah, Laura has quite the cushy little pad over mm. there in Exeter, New Hampshire, yeah. Quite the cushy pad. It will be super cushy when my new fancy schmancy stove comes and I have a great dinner party when I can cook again. Ooh, yes, sure. officially. Yeah, being able to when, eat there, it's, it's nice. <laughs> and when Kevin comes over, you should have him put those new lights over your dining room table because that's something he knows how to do. Oh, my! well, Gary, my lovely electrician is coming back, so um, he's going to do that. But Kevin can sit in my massage chair. <laughs> From yes. Bob's Discount Furniture. Yeah. <laughs> a discount massage chair. What could possibly go wrong? Absolutely nothing. I may just lean my neck all the way back into these massaging it's just like, metal. This is like one of those like backward state death chambers where yeah. like something's definitely going to go wrong when you sit in the electrified chair from Bob's Discount Furniture. And you yep. strap me in. Yep. <laughs> Have a priest sit next to me while you turn it on. There's a witness. And last words, Flynn. It's next to the fireplace. So, I mean, there is like a double hazard there, but it's all good. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, Kevin, this is obviously Thursday's podcast. Yeah. What is coming up on Monday's show? On Monday, we're going to be talking about the Netflix documentary series, American Nightmare. All right. I'm looking forward to talking about that one. No, it was really interesting. I will say the title does not tell you anything about what it is. That sounds scary. Am I going to be frightened by this? No. No. I'm telling you the title. Remember a couple weeks on the after show we were talking about titles? Yeah. This is one of those. It could have been titled differently. (laughs) Okay. Because it sounds like a horror movie, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something. It tells you nothing. It could be like buying a shitty house or it could mean like... You know, you're in your family getting sawed up. It's neither one of those mm. things. In my opinion, it's like maybe they had to put it out and they were like, crap, we forgot to give this a title. <laughs> they just started brainstorming. <laughs> yeah. A whole bunch of words and American and Nightmare happen to be next to each other on like the whiteboard. Like, oh, that's good. Asked AI to Adjective, create a title. Yeah. Now. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Don't look it up, Laura. You, want, you, you don't want you don't want to be spoiled. I want to be surprised when yeah. I turn it on and there's no chainsaws. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I didn't know anything about the story. And when I started watching it, I there were some twists. I was very surprised. Yeah, don't spoil okay. yourself. Don't spoil yeah, seriously, yourself. this is one you don't want to be spoiled when you watch. It's okay. It's pretty twisty. Okay. Um, Kevin, I really want to talk about the thing we're talking about right now. So okay. should we just get right into it? Let's do it. After all of that, should we just get right into it? Let's do it. All right, guys. I think we should take the room down a little bit because this one's a little bit dark. So I'm just going to say this. Leading off, let's drop that first clip right now. I think uh, we don't know where the father is. He, he went to cut hay this morning. His gun is gone. And his wallet's here and the car's gone. We don't know where he is. Oh, what do you think happened? Well, I think, obviously, you think she killed himself, right? What else is anyone going to think? After missing for six years, Miles Nasland was discovered at the bottom of an Alberta pond his body welded inside a metal toolbox. 
Police arrested his wife, Helen, who said she shot him in 2011 while he slept after enduring three decades of abuse. Do you remember um, becoming aware or fearing that he could kill you? Um, Yeah, I think I had that feeling right from the start that he could, yes. But the full extent of her son's involvement in the killing remains murky. And Helen's sentence was much harsher than that of other Canadian women who've used the battered woman defense. How can you say there were other options? Do you not know about the plight of rural women escaping male violence against women? Do you not know about battered women's syndrome? Have you not looked at the case law? You've been a judge for decades. From the Globe and Mail comes the podcast In Her Defense. Host Janet G. Pruden recounts Helen Naslin's case through jailhouse interviews and commentary from friends, children, and legal experts. Did the courts fully take into account the 30 years of domestic violence she endured at the hands of her shooting victim? And is she protecting any family members who may have played a larger role in the killing and cover-up? Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from In Her Defense, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes, for our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. So, Kevin, they do have a lot of sources in this podcast, right? Yeah, I think it's great they have as many voices as they do. Uh, we get Helen with these jailhouse interviews, and we get at least one of her, her sons and some other people. Uh, this podcast originated as a long-form newspaper article for the Globe and Mail. You know, I think there really was, you know, a lot of good news gathering But I don't think there's a lot of storytelling here. I mean, there are advantages of this medium versus print, you know, a little more intimate, a little more emotional, perhaps. And I feel like it sounds like a long form magazine article. It doesn't really sound like a podcast to me. So I think that's sort of part of my problem with it is they've got good sourcing, good, you know, raw material. I'm not really crazy about what the final product was. Hmm. So, Debbie, you sent me a note and you talked about how this case is a case of an, like an illustration of abuse. Like, what did you mean by that when you sent me that note? So I just we've listened to a lot of podcasts where there's a story of something that's happened and then they use that to sort of explore like a larger problem, whether it's, you know, innocent people have been convicted or or what have you. Right. And this one seems more like it's a podcast about an issue and that this story is used to kind of access that issue, but it's the issue seems to be the big thing rather than this particular case, which is not to diminish the case. And I don't, I don't, I'm not necessarily saying this is a criticism, but it is something I noticed is that it feels as though at least for me, I came away from it with a pretty good understanding of why within the Canadian legal system, these situations with domestically abused uh, women murdering their abuser, how that's been handled, some of the court cases, all this stuff. And the actual case that happened, it's a good sort of illustration of how women are just at this horrendous sort of legal disadvantage in these instances uh, and how that can kind of play out. And in this case, it's extreme domestic violence. I don't know how unusual it is, but certainly the way she was treated by the court system seems as though it's kind of unusual for sort of modern days. Yeah. 
So I just want to make it clear to our audience that when we are talking about a story like this, we're talking about the media around the story and we're talking about the story. But in terms of the media around the story, I just want to say it is impossible for me to not compare this podcast with the incredibly great podcast, Believe Her, which was, I believe, Kevin, your number one podcast from two years ago and was number two, I believe, for me. It is one of the best podcasts I have ever heard. And it is about a a, a victim of domestic violence who also killed her domestic partner and was also convicted of his murder. The premise of that podcast is why do survivors of domestic violence, the only when the only way they can survive is to basically do self-defense and get out, why are they then convicted even when it's known that they are going to die if they don't? When, for instance, there are things like stand your ground laws, when someone can just walk into your house and you're allowed to shoot them in many places and and not be convicted of murder. And that so there was a big premise there. But also that story was told in such an incredibly engaging way that you couldn't wait to hear the next episode. It was so grim and it was so dark, but it was just so engaging and the voices were so engaging and the host was so present and they had gone back to sort of retell a story that had already been told in an article, which was such an amazing trick of journalism. And this story is important. And this woman was basically the victim of horrific abuse, obviously over a much longer period of time. She's an, she was an older woman when she killed her husband. They had her kids were older. And the systemic abuse, I don't think is uninteresting because the community knew it was a sort of a similar kind of tale the way it was sort of wound out. But one of the observations you made, Laura, which struck me also, is that there is sort of a flatness in the way that the story is presented to us. And I found myself really struggling with, is it the writing of the story, sort of the the presentation of the story? Is it that they rely on Helen so much for the telling of the story? And I found myself really struggling with it. And I'm like, is it only because I'm comparing it to believe her? Or is it because this isn't doing her story justice? I feel like it wasn't doing her story justice. What Toby was saying about this being an issue-driven podcast, I felt that way as well, but I felt like that didn't really kick in until like episode four or five when we started hearing from that retired justice who was talking about that case that was so influential, the Angelique Lavalley case that started that law. So the beginning, the buildup where we're actually getting Helen's story and her children's story It was told in a way, and it was very journalistic. It was like a very straightforward journalistic, like we're going to go, we are are getting in. This is the first time she's telling the story. But unfortunately, it felt flat to me. And and it was horrible, the abuse that she went through for as long as she did. But I feel like her telling of her own story really wasn't able to convey the horror and the totality of that abuse. I wasn't going in there. I was paying the rent, so. Mm-hmm. That would have been stupid on my part to pack up and mm-hmm. walk out when everything there was mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I guess I had a too big a heart. I felt sorry for him. Like I said, we, we shared the same goals. You know, our end goal in life was to farm and live in the country and 
And at first I was like, God, this is really frustrating me. And then I'm like, but maybe in a way, this is actually really a window into just the amount of trauma that this woman has been through, that she's really not able to tell her story in a way that is going to make us as the listener invested. Because I'll tell you, I went and I read the newspaper story that this very same host wrote, and it was written in a way that left me feeling much more invested and sympathetic and outraged about Helen's situation than listening to the way that it was structured in the podcast, if that makes sense. Yeah, Laura, I agree. And and this is like the most horrible thing to say, but oftentimes we talk about how someone is like really good at telling their story. And it's not a character flaw to say that this person isn't a great orator. And like, this is completely the result of being ground down for decades and it should not be unexpected that that would be her demeanor and her sort of hesitance to sort of get into stuff but it does make it hard to lean into long stretches of that audio tape without maybe a little more guidance from the editor and being a little more aggressive getting in and sort of narrating some of the the points because unfortunately I mean, we're not talking about a podcast unfortunately it does sort of take from the urgency and the energy that could be there. And again, it's just, we've, we've done several hundred podcasts. We've heard from people who are, are victims and some do a better job at others as sort of being the person who tells their truth in a way that connects with us. And I had a hard time getting that same kind of engagement from Helen, which is, which is unfortunate because like you said, I also read the article and on paper it comes off like completely, completely different. But, yeah. Well, we've also heard podcasts of stories like we've never heard from the person in prison. We've heard, yeah, 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 we've yeah. heard many, many podcasts. We haven't needed to hear from the person at the center of the story, and it doesn't matter. So I don't blame in any way Helen and her storytelling or anything. I think there's something else going on here where I'm just going to throw out something. I think the most compelling voice in this whole podcast is her son, Wesley. Yeah. Agreed. Because it wasn't too long before that where I stood in Holden Hotel in the middle of the bar full of people with a 7 mil ram mag locked and loaded with one in the chamber pointed about four inches from his fucking forehead telling him either you do it or I'm going to. Again, you probably rather I didn't like him very much. Me and him didn't have a talking, loving relationship, put it that way. So Wesley is a fucked up dude, and that is not his fault. He is an incredibly damaged, really stark, really dark guy. And he has a lot to say about what his mother may or may not have done, what his brothers may or may not have done, and where he is as a result of this situation. And he brings more to this than... And I, and I don't want to like rank the talkers in the podcast. That's not what this is about. But the story itself has so much more energy and the writing is so strong around Wesley's interview because there's so much more to say around like generational trauma and sort of the mystery of what actually happened when you're talking to Wesley because he wasn't there but he admits to having buried the car. And he also clearly knows that the public story isn't the real story and understands why his mom is keeping secrets on behalf of the other brothers, right? So 
I don't necessarily think we needed to lean on Helen so much. She is uh, reticent to talk for real reasons. She's in prison because she you know, said certain things and whatever. But like her boss is a super interesting character because he paid for her legal defense. He's the one who let her take this encouraged her to take this stupid fucking plea when she probably should have gone to trial. Like there's like a lot of interesting issues around it. I think that leaning on Helen so much to be a central voice, that's the mistake. Cause she like her telling the story, that is not the important part of the story. What's important is what happened with her case, not what happened that night. Right. Well, Wesley, he's the one that he's the one that the big bulge in his pants, right? Yes. What do you think that is? At this point in the conversation, Wes stood up and showed me, an enormous bulge in his pants. It was a bit of a weird moment. I'm not that well endowed. <laughs> I have no idea. That is what a bilateral hernia surgery looks like when it ruptures through your muscles of your gut. Oh, God. And fills your scrotum with your intestine. Boy, if ever there was somebody... That is an example, like you said, Rebecca, of the lasting impact of trauma. This guy is it. And it was clear just the way that he was even talking um, was was just fascinating. But he's also intentionally unlikable. Like when he's talking to you, he's basically daring you to not like him. He wants to prove to you that he's bad and he's irredeemable. And it's really a defense mechanism. He doesn't want to open himself up to somebody maybe trying to have feelings for him or for him to try to have feelings for somebody else, which is completely understandable. So the bigger he talks, it's really the more pain that he's masking. But I tell you, just listening to him talk was like really, really fascinating. Agreed. Don't you think so, Toby? Yeah, I guess I, I don't really agree with any of you guys about Helen. I thought she was super compelling. I mean, she's not like an orator or anything, but her description of her life and sort of the details that she picked out about her day to day, like she talks about how he abused pigs to the point where they wouldn't be able to sell them for food. She, she just brought up these different things and it's like, okay, how do you talk about, you know, three decades of just relentless abuse. I don't know. I When I was listening to her, I don't know if it like sort of pulled out some sympathy or, or what, but I found it pretty moving, this mm. story. And then the fact that she's got these kids where the father is basically making it impossible for them to turn out as anything other than incredibly damaged people and she's in a situation where she doesn't want this to happen but there's really nothing she can do about it and then when she does try and do something about it, like goes and sees a therapist she's like oh, i'll go with you to the therapist and sees what's going on it's like you're never going again so it's like the hopelessness of her situation was so clear in a way that i think was important for people to understand so when they talk about the murder like, there's no question that there was nothing else for her to do, right? She lays out a rationale that I think any person listening would be like, yeah, there is no other way out. He's already ruined all your lives. And it's just a matter of if he's actually going to kill you. He was out on the other side of that door with a gun that was, uh, and I felt bad. Like, my, my biggest fear was I didn't have the kids with me. I would have told, you know, just 
if I ever tried it and ever did get away, it would, he would hunt me down in the kids and we would all die. Would literally dispose of the kids while I could see it and then I would go. I found her story to be about as depressing as it gets, but I think letting her talk her way through it, I, I found it very affecting, but I, I realized I'm <laughs> the minority on no. that. No, 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 it's, it's, and I think that's completely valid. There is something too about when she talks about the period of time where she was free after he was dead and she went back to like rodeoing I know. and working and having fun. Like like that that also was very effective. I actually agree with that. That that part was very effective. Yeah, I think it's okay that, you know, we disagree on uh, like whether that was well produced. I think we all agree that our podcasts are well produced on Patreon. Oh, what a right? what a smooth transition, Kevin. Yeah, and, you know, and we might disagree about whether that was a classy way of doing that. It wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> no one disagrees with that. Wasn't the clock classy, Kevin? Kevin, you're not a class act, but we love you. Anyway. Oh, thanks anyway. Okay, so you can get episodes of Crime Writers on early and ad free. You'd already know how we uh, went. Thumbs up or thumbs down on this episode. If you joined us at the Let's Do What We Do level, we have all sorts of exclusive podcasts there. We have Mary with Podcasts, where Rebecca and I dish out advice. We also have Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. You want to join Toby on February 5th. He's going to be recording the next episode of the podcast. You can watch him do that live. The book is called The Angel Makers. And Toby, tell us, who are your guests? My guests are um, from Crime Scene, Sarah Carradine, uh, Sarah Kalen, who I think people know, uh, private investigator, former police detective, and uh, a new face who I'm excited to have on, Bridget Keown, who is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Also, we have in Partners in Crime World, we've got the latest episode of These Other Stories, the Law & Order podcast. We're looking at a special Mothership episode it goes back to uh, 1998. This is season eight, episode 18, called Stalker. And in this episode, uh, we see about a guy who he's a, he's a, he's a peeping tom, takes photographs, and he has virtual sex by putting himself in a still photo and then having sex with the woman in the still photo. It's it's, it's great. Like, it's it's pre TikTok slash Photoshop ah! slash Microsoft Paint. It's wild. I, he's like. <laughs> In the in the video, like sneaking up on the yeah. woman who's just still frame, like yeah. where is she gonna go? I literally <laughs> was wondering the same thing. I was like, "How's this gonna happen? Is he just what is he gonna do? Is like turn She's around? She's making spaghetti. She's like literally putting spaghetti in a pot, and he's just like sneaking up and putting his hand in his pants. And I'm like, okay, wait. She's I just, thought she was topless in the bathroom. Are we like? I don't know. I couldn't tell. It was oh very my gosh. pixelated. That's true. It was very pixelated. <laughs> It means yeah. it probably, it's 1998. Yeah. It probably took like 45 minutes to load. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a banger. It is. Yeah. It's, and our guest was incredible <laughs> for the episode. Yes. So, Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Patreon patron saints are Mona Markham Faber and Anne Burlingham. Bless you. Mona and thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. I really want to shout out everybody who's a patron on Patreon. And those of you who are thinking about it, I really want to encourage you to give it a try. It is really fun back there. We do some great stuff. And for those of you who really aren't considering it, that's okay too. We just appreciate having you as listeners. But know that if you do support us on Patreon, you're supporting us being able to do this week in, week out. This is our job and it's helping us pay the bills. So thanks a lot. 
We really appreciate you. I'm going to get back to the show right now, Kevin. Should I fade the music out right now? Let's fade it out. I'm going to go ahead and get that done. Okay, so before the break, we were talking about Helen, but I want to like pivot to her sons and her story a little bit. I see some doubt both in your notes, Kevin and Lars notes, whether or not the story actually happened as Helen says it did. And obviously there was some doubt there with the prosecutors too. And I think there may have been some doubt. Uh, Wesley also, I think, sort of expressed Mm -hmm. some inklings uh, that perhaps things didn't play out exactly the way Helen says they did. She may have been protecting one or more of her sons. Um, You know, clearly her one son who says he had nothing to do with it that's physically impossible. Wesley wasn't there. We know that. He came later and mm-hmm. helped bury the car. But she had two other sons. And Wesley talks about, of course, this 500-pound box, being able to throw it over the side of the boat. But, Kevin, you expressed doubt that Helen maybe even did the shooting. What, why, why do you feel that way? Well, I mean, for all the reasons that you say, I mean, it just seems like, I mean, we don't hear much from those other two. We don't hear anything, really, from those other two sons. We hear a little bit of a police interview tape. But just feels more likely that one of those men would have gone and pulled the trigger because they seem a little more volatile. You know, if we can just talk about demeanor, which we always say we shouldn't do that, but it just doesn't feel like she would snap. Hmm. It's also that, you know, they talk about the responsibility pie. And I feel like a mom would be willing to say, you know, if she knows that she could take the full load that she would, especially if the mother felt perhaps guilty about the childhood that she gave to her kids, the things that she couldn't do, she couldn't protect them growing up. It just feels to me like it's just far too convenient. I mean, she got the number of shots wrong, right? I shot him once and she didn't, you know, and she also says, I don't remember doing it. I don't know. There were just a lot of suspicious things there, but... You know, somebody had to go to jail for it, and she volunteered. Didn't it seem interesting, Laura, that no one really gave a shit that this guy was missing? <laughs> like, the life life went on. Life went on because he sucked. He really fucking sucked. Yeah. No, I think that that was very telling, the fact that no one seemed bothered. I think it was very telling that the small town didn't say anything about any of the suspicions, even though people had suspicions. When you live in a small rural farming community— you know what's happening. I think that the idea that he finally went out and committed suicide was a convenient explanation. But I think the fact that nobody was terribly upset about the fact that he went missing was also, again, very telling. And I think I agree with what Kevin was saying. I mean, it's like, who knows what really happened? There was supposedly somebody heard three gunshots. The pathologist found two bullets. Helen admitted to shooting him once. And then she talked about, like you said, Kevin, kind of coming out of it and being there and like seeing all the blood or whatever. So to me, it was just very sad. There's this woman and her two sons and it's survival. And when you look around at the surroundings out there and the environment out there, you can see how, yeah, part of me does think she probably took the fall for one of the kids and that we don't really know and we'll never know what happened. But in a way, that's okay because they're breaking the cycle and she's out of jail now. And she has yeah. two cats. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that really struck me, Toby, was that in the original sentencing and after the original process, when she was encouraged to take a plea, which I'm still really pissed about, one of the judges said that, you know, 
her husband and, you know, he deserved to feel safe in his own home. Um, And that sort of spurred this discussion about how and when these laws were written, what they say. And there, of course, I think in Canada, obviously, it's way more progressive than in the United States. When when they had people saying, like, this is the worst sentence that's ever been given out for a woman who's killed her abuser. I'm like, really? That's incredible. Like in the United States, it's like eight life sentences for a woman who murdered her or killed her. Yeah. Yeah. I've just like based on a, on a survey of podcasts we've done in the last six months, it seems pretty light. I'm like 19 years. That seems incredible. Uh, But what, what, how did that strike you? Just, you know, that conversation around not just in comparison with the laws in the United States, but just this sort of conversation that we hear about how these laws are written. Because at that part is not particularly different. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, people write laws from their own viewpoints, right? I mean, I, I think for the most part and up until, you know, fairly recently, historically, it's been white men writing laws to kind of enforce sort of the way they like to live. So I, I do think between that and between these gender norms that we subscribe to, uh, they, they talk about that in sort of the same discussion or, or one that's sort of adjacent to it about like men are sort of inherently violent. And, you know, sometimes if they kill their wife, it's because they got carried away doing something that was natural for them. Whereas women who kill men, like that's sort of going against their way their gender is. So that's somehow like worse or harder to explain. So, yeah, I mean, they, they talk about the concept of a man's home is his castle and the the woman is kind of left out of that equation. And certainly this fucking judge, it's just like he has a right to feel safe in his home. Like after he has made everybody else in his home, like not just feel unsafe, but actually physically and mentally be unsafe for 30 years. It's mind boggling that anybody would be sort of that obtuse to come up with something like that. But I think it does kind of like, I don't think they talk about the age of this guy. And I think there's still people like in our generation who probably feel that way, but it does speak to a sort of like an older mindset about sort of the place of different people in society. And, you know, in miles in this sort of very generic way by being a white man gets those sort of privileges in a way that he a doesn't deserve and b lends itself to severe consequences for the people around them. Yeah, Toby, to your point there, I one of the things I learned was about sort of the patriarchal origin of like self-defense laws where the assumption was when the these kinds of things were crafted it would be between two men, so two people who are presumably physically equal. And so when you're talking about, you know, like the duty to retreat and all these other things there, the way the law envisions this incident, it's like two dudes, right? And it doesn't account for this physical and other kind of different power dynamic in regards to many heterosexual partners. In this case, Miles is like six feet tall and Helen is like five feet tall. And it's like, oh, okay, now I see like sort of where that, you know, why these laws are sort of, they presume that this is the case and there's a duty to retreat and all that other stuff, but it just, it's not one size fits all on what self-defense is. See, here's what I heard. What I heard that these laws were written, that it's worse than you, that you kill your male partner because you're also killing the king. The king. Yes. That's literally what the, what they said. Well, it's because they call it treason. Yeah. It's a minor treason. You might kill your wife because, you know, sometimes she's a fucking pain in the ass and deserves it. But 
you kill your husband, you're killing the king and you're committing treason. Like that is, that's the basis of the law. Can you start calling me king? No. Shit. That's like some Magna Carta type but, stuff. Bad Lar. Well, I was going to say, and then piggybacking on that, the way that her case was handled at court was absolute fucking bullshit. It was. With her lawyer, who's like, I acknowledge there's difficulties in the home, makes no argument like at all about battered woman defense. Difficulties in the home. Difficulties in the home. I'm like, fuck you. And then there's no victim impact statements. Helen doesn't speak. Like as somebody that works in the court system and works in the field of criminal defense to hear a case like this where there is so much evidence of what was happening in that home from the neighbors, from the people in the community, from the people themselves and have none of that at all brought up. And this woman just taking this 18 years in prison because that's better than what other things you're going to get. Like, oh my God, that made me wild. Okay, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the podcast In Her Defense? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for In Her Defense? So I'm going to go mild thumbs up on this because I think that this story and the battered woman defense and the background on how that is handled in Canada is very interesting. I think for me, the reason I'm not going like enthusiastic thumbs up is that I feel like the storytelling, it was almost like a magazine article put into a podcast, but put into a podcast in a way that for me, parts of it lost the impact and weren't as compelling as they could have been. And when I read the um, actual print version of this story, it was very compelling. So I think it just, some parts of this didn't carry over well in the way they were translated in the podcast. But overall, I mean, I think this case and what happened to Helen and her children and their journey through the court system and her path to prison in this case were absolutely rage-inducing. There are parts that maybe the story structure didn't move along quite in the way that I would have wanted them to. But overall, I think that this was a story that we needed to hear about. So mild thumbs up. Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for In Her Defense? Uh, I think I liked it better than everybody else did. I, I guess I would say, first of all, that the domestic violence that's described in this is absolutely horrifying. And if that's a trigger for somebody, I would not listen to this because it's pretty frank and raw. Um, That being said, it's a rough listen in that you get this picture painted from the very people's mouths that of this very abusive, claustrophobic, no way out situation that leads to the murder of the abuser. I think it just does such a great job of sort of describing a situation in which there is no other way out. I, I found that very compelling. You know, the structural issues, there is this kind of, you know, you get this story and then there's there's almost like kind of a break where you get a whole bunch of background stuff, which is also interesting. It's maybe not like the most elegant structure for something. Uh, it didn't really bother me a whole lot. I found all the parts interesting enough that that didn't bother me. We talked a little bit about how it's sort of of a piece with Believe Her, which was a great, great podcast from, what, two years ago, a year and a half ago. And maybe it's lacking a little bit compared to that, but on its own, I I found parts of this very moving. I I think the story gets across, man. Like I understood the imperatives that were going on and, and decisions that were made and the way in which the legal system 
like really failed these people. So I guess I give it a strong thumbs up. And that's my review. Kevin Flint. I'm going thumb sideways. I think that they got like a lot of great people here to interview. I think it could have had a, maybe a heavier hand in the editing to maybe achieve a different kind of effect than you get from a straight magazine or print article. I don't know. Did anybody else like discover the, you know, the Marvel Marvel movie secret scene at the end of the credits for the last episode? No. Yeah, I maybe stumbled across that. It was basically about Jenna going to a party for Helen's benefit. And I, I was like, there should be more of this in that podcast. Yeah, why there was it a secret scene? Why wasn't it in the podcast? I don't know. And I could like if if maybe I had a technical difficulty and that just like burped out someplace else, but it doesn't sound like anything you guys sounds like this sort of like first person stuff, this sort of being in the moment like that could have really, you know, enhanced this. But like in the review, we talk about sort of what I thought were some some editing choices, um, you know, some of the deficiencies in the way the story comes across as a podcast. But it's a very interesting case. And you're right. It's very enraging. One shouldn't try to compare it to Believe Her or Blind Plea. Those were extraordinary podcasts. But this, for me, this just didn't fire on all of its cylinders. So uh, I'm sideways. I am a mild thumbs up, and I'm not going to repeat everything everybody said. I think this is an important story. I think it's an interesting story. I fundamentally want to be where Toby is, but it did not hit me in the same way. I think that the reporting is really strong. I also read the print article, but it just did not come across in the audio. And for me, the most compelling parts of the story were listening to Wesley's interviews and the sort of uh, themes of generational trauma and the, you know, the legal stuff. But it's just not framed in such a way where I felt like I really, really need to listen to the next episode. I really got it. I really got it. And for a story like this, that's as grim as it is. It's a trick to make the audience want to go on. But in order to make the audience want to go on, you got to make the audience want to go on. And that's how you're going to get people to care. And the same way this article is as great as it is, you got to bring that same trick to your podcast. So yeah, mild thumbs up for me. Important story, good story. Could have been a better podcast. All right, that's going to do it for us. But before we go, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We have a cat of the week this week. Courtesy of one of our listeners and my follower on, it's always going to be Twitter to me, Simon G, Simon Speed Racing, who sent me this amazing story out of the UK. Sudbury cat missing for five years turns up two miles away. So what I love about this story is the owner was devastated when the ginger, because it's obviously it's a ginger boy cat, my personal favorite, Fred left home from Sudbury, Suffolk in 2019. And recently, the owner was contacted by a vet because an elderly man had been feeding Fred and brought him in to get checked out at the vet clinic. And so it was, you know, they had moved. They they did all this stuff. They put up flyers. They walked around looking for Fred, couldn't find Fred. There was a lot of, she said, ugly crying. Mm. And I know how that feels when you lose a ginger cat. She said, I had this dream that maybe a little old lady had taken him in and not let him out. And he was living his dream life around the corner. After all of this, she's reunited with Fred, but she saw that this little old man had bonded with the cat and said, Aww. I would like you to be. That's so sweet. I wouldn't do that. I'd be and like, she, give my fucking cat back. <laughs> she said, quote, you could see it in his eyes. He was just in love with the cat. He's an elderly gentleman who lives on his Aww. own, no wife, no children. 
You have to do what's right long-term for everyone rather than be selfish about it. And so this is my, I just love this story. And uh, thank you, Simon, for sending it my way. That's super wonderful. Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you and send you any kind of story, heartwarming or otherwise, uh, for their animals or other people's animals to be cat of the week. It doesn't have to be a cat, obviously. How can they find you online? You can find me at Lara Bricker. And of course, you can also email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com with your stories or post them in our Facebook group. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you. How can they find you? At Toby Ball NH. What about you, Kevin? How can you be found? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me pretty much on any social platform, but I mostly hang out on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show everywhere at Crime Writers On, but please join our amazing Facebook group. Lara, I'm it's reading Laura. the credits. Knock it off. It's Lara and her All cat. you got to do is go to Facebook, look for our pinned post, join the group, say any of our names, just tell us who's your favorite. We'll let you in. Get episodes early and ad-free at patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. You'll get the Crime Writers on After Show, Mary with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deeply Intellectual Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Livy Burdett, who lives in Spain, by the way. No big deal. The executive producer of this show is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet. In our New Hampshire basement, where I admit I have also contemplated welding my husband into a large metal box. All right, I'll do that laundry. Fuck. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Let's drop that first clip right now. Are you going to play some stupid fucking sound effect? Just turn that one down then. I don't want to hear some wah, wah, wah. Okay? <laughs> a Canadian wah, wah, wah. Yeah. A, A, A. It's only 90% as long as our wah-wah-wahs. Okay, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but they have free health care. It's a metric wah-wah-wah. Yeah.